Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Welcome to Big Blend Radio with your hosts, Lisa and Nancy, editors of BigBlendMagazine.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Big Blend Radio's Writer's Wednesday show, which airs every second Wednesday with our friends over at Books Forward. I encourage you to go to their website, booksforward.com. And of course, for your host, Nancy and Lisa, the mother-daughter travel team on the Love Your Parks tour, and also publishers of the various Big Blend magazines. You can see all that at blendradioandtv.com. Today, we're excited to welcome internationally recognized psychiatrist and author, Dr. Jess Wright, and he is joining us to talk about his World War II era novel, A Stream to Follow, and it releases on April 19th, so just a few days away, so you can pre-order it now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's it's being released (laughs) through uh, Spark Press, and we encourage you to go to his website, jesswrightmd.com, and that's W-R-I-G-H-T for jesswrightmd.com. So welcome to the show, Jess. How are you? I'm just fine, and it's great to be with you, Lisa and Nancy. Hey, it's, you know, it's funny. Normally, she introduces us as the crazy, crazy mother and doctor travel. I got nervous. I got nervous. But we're not on a couch. I'm sitting in a chair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I must say, I, I try my very best when I <laughs> stop my daily work to turn off the sign that says psychiatrist. Yeah, just right. try to be a regular kind of person. So I won't try to analyze you. Okay. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's got to be fun at a cocktail party with you. I mean, it's it's some half of the room run or the other half have a million questions for you about their family. It's mm. going to be, you know, one of those. But I think it's really exciting that you're writing fiction. Um, you're, mm-hmm. you're well known for writing, you know, nonfiction books uh, dealing in psychiatry and also cognitive therapy, which I think is really interesting. But going into fiction, uh, what led you to that? Is that something about, you know, cause a lot of times you'll take, uh, you know, professional folks who have a, a strong message to get through and sometimes fiction, um, you know, in books or even in movies kind of helps get the message across. Is that part of your path into fiction? A uh, part of it, but I think this particular story has been brewing in me a long time. Mm-hmm. And I've gone through all the things with the uh, academic physician of publishing or perishing. You might have heard of that old saying. (laughs) uh, I went through that for many years of doing scientific research, publishing scientific articles, writing scientific books, and then branched off into self-help books. And I found that when I was writing self-help, I was connecting with people in a very different way Mm. than when I was writing these fairly dry uh, scientific articles. Of course, I I still write the scientific articles, just had a recent one that that came out uh, about a month ago. but I really enjoyed uh, putting more emotion into it, mm-hmm. trying to set, tell the story in a very different kind of way than 
I had through all my years of uh, clinical practice and, and being a professor, if you will. So I'm trying to throw away my professor's hat and trying to just get into the story and tell one that I think is important for people, uh, mm. but yet is entertaining and engaging the kind of book that I'd like to read or my sisters would like to read or my wife would like to read the people mm. that I know. Um, so that's, that's what I've been doing. And I started this project several years ago and have really enjoyed it more so than I thought. I hear all these stories about writer's block and drudgery and you know, the empty page and so forth, but that hasn't really <laughs> hit me that much for some reason. Maybe I'm just lucky on this first thing that I've enjoyed it so much. But mm -hmm. I've, I've, uh, since, since I completed a stream to follow, I have an, another book that's uh, been finished and with my agent now. So it looks like I'm opening a new chapter in my life. Oh, that's awesome. exciting. That's yeah. exciting. I might also say that I've, I should practice what I preach, if you will, as a doctor. And I keep advising my patients who are getting a little older that don't stop, you know, have some new thing to throw yourself into something that's mm -hmm. exciting, something that's challenging, something that, uh, that stimulates your mind. Of course, I also rec recommend exercise, both physical and mental exercise. So I'm doing it, uh, I guess, myself with writing awesome. this stream to follow. No, uh, I think you're right, because just sitting around moping about getting old doesn't change anything. It just makes it move quicker. <laughs> you get right. old faster. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like the term getting old. It's, you know, well, okay. why uh, are you more getting experienced? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maturing. Well, we, like a, we shouldn't probably like say getting old, but yeah. if, you're, yeah. if you're watching the video, you can see some gray hairs on my head. So <laughs> I, mm -hmm. I've done a few things already in my life before I turned to writing fiction. Uh, you know, I, I do want to touch on the book and have you kind of give an overview. Nancy's reading the book and we, mm -hmm. we can't, honestly, we can't trust Nancy. She'll say something <laughs> that people need to find out in the book. But uh, it's, this is a World War II era book, but you've got Bruce Duncan. And uh, from what I've been gathering, it's you've got a love story, stories in there. Uh, you've got also going through trauma from, you know, war mm -hmm. and then also um, illness in there that I, I'd like to touch into too but can you give everyone just a little overview without any spoilers because the book is coming out april 19th everyone right well it does have a few twists and i'll try not to reveal those uh, but essentially this is a story about a surgeon uh from world war ii that had to experience that most doctors that are serving in military assignments in today's world would not have at that time the uh, graduates of medical schools, like fresh out of medical school, freshly minted, were sent to a, like a crash course in being a trauma surgeon, or at least being able to uh, stabilize people that had traumas and were sent right to the front line. Yeah. And during World War II, uh, there was very little in the way of, of mercy for the medical personnel. In fact, they, and many times they were used almost as target practice ambulances were shot up and so the the doctors at that time saw really vicious kinds of things not only to the people they were treating but to themselves and it was high mortality rate so it's it wasn't uncommon for physicians to come back and have what we now call ptsd mm -hmm. in those days uh very little was known about it it was called combat fatigue mm -hmm. and, and the the treatment was essentially uh, to take you away from the front lines for a little while, just a brief time. Uh, sometimes they got a shot of um, a sedative and then were sent right back to the lines and it was essentially suck it up and 
get mm. back to fight. Uh, now, when we treat PTSD today, we know that it is important to get back on the horse, if you will, eventually. But uh, this was pretty tough on a lot of people. But the story really revolves around uh, how someone is hurt badly emotionally, uh, psychologically, and then uh, finds a way for healing. Mm-hmm. And there's there are many paths to healing in the book. Uh, the title, by the way, is metaphorical, a stream to follow. Mm-hmm. Uh, as in my work as a psychiatrist, I see that there are many streams that one can follow to reach wellness or to reach some kind of healing for an illness or from trauma. And I wanted to show one that was really palpable, strong, heartfelt, um, that make, would make sense to people. And even have, even though the book is written in 1946 and then with flashbacks into the war in 1944, 1945, lessons that would be really useful to people today. Well, speaking of that, I think that's really uh, timely in a way, because mm-hmm. when you think about what's happening right now in the world and, and also our, you know, our medical practitioners, our medical folks, you know, everyone serving during COVID, you know, while I hear is the medical community, I know even Dr. Jackie Ubani, our, our, our cardiologist who's on our show every month, we were talking about that, you know, mm-hmm. with nurses, doctors run ragged and also having to experience a huge amount of death that is more than what they're used to handling. So, you know, we've been having this, I think, a very national and international discussion about PTSD in, you know, the medical community. So I think it's very timely. Right. And uh, of course, we're going to see just tremendous amount of psychological trauma in addition to the physical trauma from what's happening in Ukraine now. Right, absolutely. Statistics are really pretty scary. If you're up close on on the front on a a wartime experience, your chances of having at least acute PTSD are somewhere around 40%. Mm. So we think about all the people in Ukraine, we're looking at many, many millions Mm -hmm. uh, that are going to have issues that are going to go way beyond the physical trauma and the dislocation and all the terrible things that are happening today. Well, the nerve, I mean, it's to live like the Ukrainians are having to live right now and never knowing what's going to happen from minute to minute. I mean, the stress right. is, mm-hmm. I can't imagine really that it's kind huge, of stress. huge uh, psychological stress. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Almost incomprehensible how well so many of them are doing at least mm-hmm. from the accounts that we see on TV and mm-hmm. read the newspaper. It's really oh, remarkable. When, when you think about having a novel where we, we touch on this on the shows a lot, but I think it's really, you know, connecting with what you've written, especially is, you know, when we think about, you know, PTSD and trauma and everybody's at a different stage of it. I know I had a little bit of that when we went through a series of wildfires in a year and a half, we evacuated mm. full evacuations living in a mountain town when there's only one road in and out mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was arsonists they were trying to burn the mountain down I mean it was a mess and mm-hmm. and it took a long time almost like six months later to realize you're not sleeping because you're waiting for the next fire so you're almost in that right. you know that crazy cycle and see I did use the word Nancy there it is mm-hmm. uh, but but going <laughs> to your book now being fiction I think there's something I don't know, because I'm not a psychiatrist, obviously, but there is a, a point of cognitive therapy by reading a book, because there's no one there telling you yes or no about your feelings. And it's an easier way to relate to somebody else's story in a way. 
do you think it, it, it just when you're reading a novel it kind of feels better and you can identify in a way without someone telling you how to identify i think you're you're spot on with that comment thinking back about so many books that i've read through the years that were just so influential mm -hmm. uh, and they weren't somebody lecturing to me or mm -hmm. uh, telling me i needed to do this or do that uh you know, exercise more or eat right or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. uh, so I really think there's something in that. Uh, when I set off to write this book, I thought that, well, I, I wasn't experienced in fiction writing, although I was very experienced at writing other things. Mm -hmm. But I thought as a psychiatrist, I had a, a, a window of insight into the way people feel and the way they think that, that perhaps some other authors wouldn't have because of so many people I've listened to through the years and all the studying I've done. So I tried to weave into the novel a lot of really deep uh, kind of psychological understanding of the way people think when they're under stress mm. uh, and, uh, and show in, in, with some of the main characters how this can go astray or how it can turn out to be a transforming experience. That is that trauma is not always necessarily bad, mm. that there are times mm. when bad things that happen to us influence us to make changes in our lives or to mm -hmm. double down on effort that we're making on a certain thing and it's important in life or to make a commitment to find something that's meaningful. Um, think about, for example, um, uh, a mother who's lost a child to a drunk driver. Mm. Terrible, wrenching, horrific mm. thing. But yet, even though her heart is aching and probably will forever uh, commits herself to doing something about uh, this problem mm -hmm. and it's an advocate. And we see a lot of that. I see a lot of that in my practice. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, if you don't mind me telling a real quick personal story, uh, some people have wondered, have you ever experienced trauma yourself? And the answer is yes. Um, when I was 16, uh, my two best friends and I went out sled riding one winter night and only two of us came home. Oh. Uh, my, we were both, all three of us were trying, we were in the Boy Scouts. We were trying to be Eagle Scouts. Uh, two of us became Eagle Scouts and one of us is in a grave. Mm. And um, I, I was traumatized obviously. And uh, if, I didn't know anything about PTSD then, nothing about how to manage it. I did it all internally stuff it all inside, like the main character in this book does for a while. It's sort of the type that doesn't talk about it, which is maybe one of the worst things you can do. Uh, and I think it did have an impact on me. And But as I think about my choice of going into medicine, I, I didn't know it. I think it was probably unconscious, but probably that's why I did that. Mm. Uh, because mm -hmm. I was, at the time that injury happened, I was helpless. Mm. I was a scout that took a first aid merit badge, but yeah, I was helpless. Wow. Um, mm -hmm. And I chose a, a profession I want. I started off to be a surgeon, but never made it that direction. So somehow the psychiatry bug bit me, which has turned out to be good for me personally, because that's, I think, where I'm, I'm best used. Mm. Uh, but I, I had that personal experience and both my father and my uncle were served in World War II. And... Um, they never said a word about it and then, until my uncle got, my, my dad died young, uh, probably mm -hmm. from the repercussions from the war. And my uncle, who was a fighter pilot, 
flew over from England, uh, over Germany and France, never said a word until he got lung cancer late in life. And it's interesting, mm -hmm. he wanted to open up to me. He just spewed out mm -hmm. all that he kept inside for decades. Uh, I, I think know, that, that probably influenced why I chose this particular story. Mm -hmm. World War II always fascinated me. Uh, I read a, I've read a lot about it. And I wanted to tell a, a story that I will, I'll give away that it's, it's not a tragic ending. Uh, <laughs> the main character does make it, if you will, although mm -hmm. it goes through a lot of trying circumstances. His brother, who was the fighter pilot in, in the book, uh, doesn't fare as well. Uh, so mm -hmm. we see two different kinds of outcomes. But you mentioned the love story in there. So one of the things that I've learned in my practice is that if you have excellent relationships and you have a caring relationship in your life, that can count for a whole bunch. And uh, that's part of the healing process too. I think we're herd animals and we need each other. And right. a lot of times we think we don't, but when stuff really bad starts to happen, you really need to circle around with your friends and family mm -hmm. because you need the support. And sometimes a stranger can be a, a really good form of support and become an instant friend because I identify with um, whatever you're going through. They may have been through something similar. And mm -hmm. we all have these moments in life. I don't know anybody who hasn't been through something traumatic at some point. Oh, that's, that's very, very true. Mm. Yeah. I just, think your point about connecting and being with people that you can talk about it with is so important. One of my colleagues and friends, Barbara Rothbaum, who's an expert in PTSD, works at Emory in Atlanta, uh, has written a, a nice book, a small book called uh, PTSD, What Everyone Wants to Know. It's, mm. it's, a, it's a really nice book. And in that, she gives the advice to people, talk about it, talk about it, talk mm. about it. Yeah, that's that's interesting mm. because it's it gets stuffed inside. I know when we lived out in um, the high desert in Twenty Nine Palms uh, in San uh, San Diego, uh, that was the fires <laughs> in mm. uh, Joshua Tree, which was after the fires uh, mm. area, and um, that's you got a huge military base. And this was way back when um, mm. I'm going to say over 15 years ago, around that time, and at that point uh, the the military men and women were coming home and just coming home for a few days and then back on tour again. Mm. We were knee deep in Afghanistan at that point and the families and those who were serving, there was this disconnect because they weren't home all the time, you know, and they'd come home and it was very quiet and nobody would share. And, you know, they're dealing with all the what mm -hmm. inside. It was very, everything was inside. And, and PTSD is now talked about. But back then, 15 years ago, it wasn't mm -hmm. something, even the military, there's been some campaigns, but it's very quiet, quiet. And um, one weekend, we heard six suicides mm -hmm. happen. Yeah. We right. literally could hear the shooting. There was a stabbing mm -hmm. between a husband Screaming. and a wife. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a real violence and death over mm -hmm. it. And yet here are men and women that went out to save and serve. You know, it's, it's a very, um, it, it's really, when you hear all that happening, it's, it's traumatic to know yeah. that that has been, it hasn't been talked about and they're not talking about it. And so I think you, I love that part that you're doing it through storytelling, but you're still really shining a bright light that we do need to talk need about to talk PTSD about because 
you know, people say PTSD and then it's like, just shove it up. Oh, yeah, I said it. Now I'm going to shove it under the rug again. Well, you, you know, know, there's, I remember um, when friends came back from Vietnam, they were actually from the military. They were told not to talk about it. They were just flat rank. They would you'd get together on Christmas and you'd have two or three people that had served in Vietnam and they wouldn't say a word. They're just like, no, that discussion's not happening. It's off the table. So I, I and I don't know if the military really does say don't talk about it. Not and now. I hope not. Uh, I, I I'm not sure who was talking with those people that you met that were Vietnam vets. I happen to be a psychiatrist. Right mm -hmm. after Vietnam, I was mm -hmm. in medical school at a time when uh, the male physicians were all subject to the draft. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. let me finish my training, and I went to um, to serve for a couple of years and talked with lots of soldiers who've been through mm -hmm. through their experiences. And uh, we certainly didn't advise that. Even back then, we knew that um, that it was important, very important, to talk mm -hmm. about it, and also. One of the things that I've tried to emphasize in the book is find positive things that you can do in your life so that you don't let this cast a pall over everything. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the book, A Stream to Follow, I said it was a metaphorical title, Finding a Stream, mm -hmm. but there are some streams in it. And it turns mm -hmm. out that our main character is a fly fisherman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> his, his days on the stream, it's he does almost fish. a meditative experience <laughs> as you're moving the rod back and forth and the arc of the line goes back and goes forward and and gently lands a tiny little fly in a stream and a trout comes up to take it and being in the woods in the forest and having the time to reflect and be in touch with oneself uh that, that can be a really important thing and mm -hmm. i'm not recommending fly fishing necessarily as a cure for ptsd but i am mm -hmm. saying that uh that we need to find Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu things in our life that give us a sense of well-being, mm -hmm. a sense of meaning, a sense of peace, a sense of calm. Mm -hmm. uh, even if we haven't had terrible traumas, those things are so important. Uh, and, uh, and that's illustrated in, in this book. Uh, as we talk about trauma, I wanted to make sure people, readers, people who might read this book, realize this is not all just grim uh, no, type no. Of oh, no. tough kinds of things. There are flashbacks to war scenes tragic things that happen. Uh, there, is, uh, there are some binds that our characters find themselves in, but overall, it, there's, there's lots of things to enjoy and, uh, 
to like and, and think and then feel like you want to turn the next page because you want to find out what's going to happen to these characters. Well, because <laughs> so the people that's, that's are. Why I, I, yeah. I told this kind of a story, try to make it uplifting, uh, heartwarming, uh, and ultimately uh, things for the most part work out. I think the characters are really real. You know, I feel like I know the people. And so you start to really care about what's happening to each person. And you can, there's some instance in the book where there's two characters that are disagreeing with each other and they used to be friends. And then you're like, no, man, you're wrong. The other guy's right. <laughs> you start taking sides with the character. So to me, that means your characters are really alive. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Mm. I, I hope that as a psychiatrist, I might have a, as I said, it's like a window into characters mm. that might be helpful. Mm. Uh, so I tried to do that mm, no I think it, it's well written and it's I'm not a fisherman but I I would go out and stand in the water and just look at the fish I wouldn't fish <laughs> I wouldn't fish but well, I we're would, allergic to fish both of us so that's yeah, not so, happening yeah, that's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but um, but it would be cool just to, to stand in the water and be around them and watch them yeah it's a, it can be beautiful spots mm -hmm. uh, I would say that all my fishing is so-called catch and release Yes. So we, uh, yes. We gently put the trout back into the water. Yeah. So, do you go fishing in Kentucky? Because Kentucky's got some of the best water in the planet. That's how you yeah. make all that wonderful bourbon. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I must say that the Kentucky bourbon is terrific stuff, and uh, <laughs> and we have a little touch of it now and then. Uh, <laughs> most of my fishing is in Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. Where the book takes place, and hmm. the reasons for that one is that. I was born and raised there, and uh, I've inherited a house there, right in the heart of the very best fly fishing in the whole eastern United States. Uh, the stream that is featured in uh, in this book, a trout stream, is was the favorite trout stream of Dwight Eisenhower, one of our presidents, and Jimmy Carter. Oh, wow. And I mm. never saw Jimmy on the stream, but I saw Secret Service people there a lot. Oh, uh, wow. So I, I, I'll be up there fishing again uh, in two weeks. So right near Gettysburg, there you go. And I'll be up there mm. enjoying that. So I tried to write about something I knew about and I, I've been fishing for a while and like to do that. Mm. So is that near Gettysburg? Because we went to Eisenhower's farm up there, uh, uh, outside it's Gettysburg. actually more in the mountains. The Gettysburg oh, okay. is down in the flatland. But don't, it, it would be about an hour and a half or so drive from Gettysburg, not too far. Yeah, Pennsylvania is a beautiful, beautiful mm -hmm. state. It really it's uh, we were there in the fall last year and we've been there uh, a bunch of times uh, over the last couple of years. So we just keep I don't know what happens, but we keep going we back, just keep going back. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we were there in the fall and it was just mind blowing. Uh, some yeah, of there is some surprising place. beauty in the state. I think a mm -hmm. lot of people who have not been there think of Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, think of industry and pollution and so mm -hmm. forth. But See, we haven't done those things at all. <laughs> yeah, that's the only thing we haven't done is those two cities. <laughs> yeah. You know, talking about pollution and such, you have a oh, part yeah. in your book about silicosis. I'm interested right. in that because um, my father had five, oh gosh, pulmonary, pulmonary fibrosis. fibrosis. And he oh. used to work at a cement factory and the doctors took a long time to diagnose him because of course it's many years ago, but they said it was from the clay particles in the air that he was continually breathing. Yeah, you know, well, so that very well could be. And a lot of people have heard about black lung or miner's lung mm -hmm. from coal, but there are many other industrial pollutants. And 
I happened to work in a brick plant when I was a young man mm-hmm. trying to get some money scrambled together to pay for college and then medical school. And I worked there in the summers and I saw firsthand a lot of silicosis, hmm. tragic things. Uh, this was all men that worked there. And mm-hmm. So there were men in their 50s that really couldn't breathe. They were going mm-hmm. to be dead soon from uh, fibrotic changes in their lungs. Uh, and we know now a lot, lot more about that. And there's much better control. Mm. Uh, but I did set up that as part of the story. So our doctor that comes back has some other battles, even here in the United States. And one of those is a, is a, is a tough fight to try to help these workers mm-hmm. uh, in their plight. Um, and um, tell, I told that story also. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that I really related to that because I remember watching my dad and I remember um, going down to the general hospital in the middle of Los Angeles and the doctor would go with my mom and he would show the x-rays of my dad's lungs. And every time it was just like got cloudier and cloudier to the point right. of there were little fingers like veins and stuff. I don't know what to call them, but they right. going out. And then all of a sudden he got down to 25% of its lung capacity. And of course that didn't, yeah, that was pretty much yeah. close to the end, you know, and it just sounds like such a similar thing because it came from the dust of the concrete and whatever else they were doing in the factory. Right. Hmm. I'm sorry to hear about your dad. That's um, unfortunately, yeah fairly common in people that worked in those kind of conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. During the wars, uh, a lot of the Navy personnel, particularly those that worked under the under the ship or in the guts of the ship, mm. uh, got exposure to asbestos. Oh, gosh. And got asbestosis, which is a mm. similar kind of thing. Yeah. You wow. know, that's interesting, tying back to Pennsylvania. We were in Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, and went to the Hagen House. It's a Hagen Historical Center. And they mm. have the Watson Curtsy, Curtsy. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I can't remember the mansion. That's Curtsy, what the mansion. And here in Erie, Pennsylvania, here's the Industrial Revolution happening. And you've got mm. all the brick, you know, that you're talking about, you know, just everything. So brick, brick, brick. And this mm-hmm. mansion, which it's got museums, is actually where the beginning of the Erie Canal was, which is now gone on this property. But the, the man who built this mansion is the one who invented asbestos. <laughs> and so, oh, yeah. And money. I mean, and he had this opulence house, like everything had to be mm-hmm. broken. And it was about showing off. And I think it was mm-hmm. on Millionaire's Road or yeah, Millionaire's Road. Millionaire's Road or Profit Al- Street. Yeah, you know, so the it was well, very... Wealthy Street. The, the names of some of the streets in that place were. It was like wealthy street, profit yeah. street. We're yeah. Like, Come on. <laughs> yeah. But he really wanted to show off, but then he didn't know he was killing people, you know, with this asbestos. So it was just, it was kind of really an eye opener to see hmm. this opulence that came from asbestos as we know it today, you know? Yeah. Just, yeah. It, it's, I'm glad you put it in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, just, it, there's so much history, you know, so tying it back to World War II and, you know, all of that up there, that is fantastic. So before you go, we do want to know what's happening with book number two. Yeah. Because Nancy wants to read it and I have to yeah. start reading a stream to follow. So <laughs> well, book number fan. two is finished, but it's uh, it's it's with my agent now and uh, it hasn't oh. been picked up by a publisher, but I hope it will be soon. It was just finished recently. Cool. Uh, 
it's a it's a different story mm -hmm. that also has psychiatry woven through it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's about um, the title is a sort of an odd title, but it comes from the uh, painting that was done by George Bellows, who was a famous mm -hmm. American painter. And Bellows happened to be invited to go to a mental institution and see something that was done back in those days. And he painted it and it's, it's quite an iconic image. He titled his painting, Dance in a Madhouse. Mm -hmm. And what happened was that people were put in psychiatric facilities and stayed off in their lifetime. And they would have these dances and people would come from the town, uh, generally pretty well-to-do people and have a party basically watching these poor people dance in front of them. And to me, it was like the epitome of stigma. Yeah, that, that is just uh, and, so bizarre. Uh, one of the worst kinds of images of how we should understand and help people that are suffering some kind of an emotional disorder. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was, I also was inf informed by a friend of mine who's a poet who came up with a really fascinating story of her uncle who turned out to be a very famous, he was, he was the brother of a very famous man and he got an illness after getting typhoid fever and became psychotic. He was never really mentally ill. He had a physical illness that caused him to have it. But in, back in 1905, that was a, it was like a kiss of death. Hmm. So you know, warehouse. So he was put in one of these institutions, and had to fight his way out. Wow. Uh, in many ways. So it's a, it's a um, psychological thriller in a way because the, mm -hmm. the character, Owen Townsend, has to use his wits and anything he can do to figure out a way to get out of this place. Wow. <laughs> he makes it, but along the way, mm -hmm. there are lots of adventures. Mm -hmm. uh, Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel anytime. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it, if you have the right tools, and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. And uh, I hope that it's a really interesting and gripping and in a way enjoying and informing novel about mental illness in those days and how we need to treat it today mm -hmm. so there, there's some throwbacks to the way people were treated back then and early days of hypnosis and freudian therapy and a lot of the history of psychiatry it's yeah that, actually with all that's these things fascinating and there's a well, lot yeah. of to it too and you have to have that oh you have you have but, to yeah. have the love story but mm. you know it is interesting talking about mm. PTSD and you know world war ii era and and even yeah. your second book you know we were in Asheville, North Carolina, and uh, just a, such a, a great place of author history and artists and musicians, you know, it's just a, and it still is an amazing creative uh, community, but we went to a um, graveyard and uh, Thomas Wolfe was buried there and um, we got an O. Henry and then we got into this whole history in the Montfort district, it's a historic Montfort district. And so the Fitzgeralds were there and right. lived in Asheville. And so Zelda Fitzgerald down the street was in the mental institution and she mm -hmm. put her, she'd check herself in and out. So those two apparently used to have rip roaring drunken <laughs> fights, almost like a Virginia Wolf kind of thing. Um, and, and yet they loved each other. So you got that story, but 
he died and then she was, you know, in that institution and they were doing the electrocution thing, you know, shock therapy, shock therapy. And she died because she was in the So your mic is off. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Sometimes it goes away. All right. So my anyway. So she was in the holding cell, or not cell, but room, and the kitchen catches on fire. They all run up the stairs, the, which turned out to be wooden stairs for your fire escape, and they all perished. So that's how she passed away. But I, I mean, it's a crazy story, but. Mm. I was wondering, the shock therapy, does that work? Is that something that, I mean, that, that I've always been fascinated by shock therapy. Yeah, I'd be Sorry. glad to answer that question. But first, I wanted to make a little comment about what you said about Zelda Fitzgerald, because you could have been a consultant for my book, Dance in a Madhouse. Because <laughs> uh, there, at the, 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 I knew about the fire that killed Zelda Fitzgerald. Oh, Wow, and I okay, do about okay. other fires in mental institutions. And oh. uh, one of the things that happens in this book is that there are fires. Uh, oh. and, mm. uh, that's a that's obviously an extremely dangerous thing mm. in an institution, particularly in those days when they were wooden and they, were, they didn't have uh, mm. systems to put out the fire and so forth and so on. So um, mm. wow, that becomes wow. a challenge. There's a there's a there's a person that's setting fire. So who knows who's setting them? And there are people that are dying. Mm. And um, one of the things our main character has to do is to figure a way um, to escape before the whole place goes down in flames. Wow. Um, but wow. that that there there were there are also some other fires that have been in mental institutions back in those days that killed many people. Wow. You don't see that today. Mm. Oh, that's interesting huh? so I wonder mm. yeah it's so so the shock mm. therapy is that something do you think that because I remember reading actually not too long ago that somebody I can't remember who was a doctor saying that there are parts of shock therapy that do work but yeah, I, you know uh, it's it's actually a had a bit of a renaissance mm. uh at one time shock treatment was used almost uh injudiciously uh mm. there weren't other treatments that worked like uh we have now we have lots of medications that work we have psychotherapies that work so uh if you'd go back into the 40s for example in the early 50s before drugs like lithium came out and then ultimately the the uh antidepressants and other effective drugs it was used across the board and mm. I, you might remember that uh movie i never uh, uh, one flew of the cuckoo's nest and mm-hmm. that, in that movie it's, it's a horror <laughs> show it uses a punishment uh jack nicholson the poor fella yeah uh, treated without any anesthesia and so forth it turns out that modern electroconvulsive therapy is done in a very humane and kind way people have anesthesia uh that's it, the machines that are used uh are very safe the, the chances of there being memory problems or side effects are quite low and it can be a lifesaver for people with severe depression. It's not used a whole lot, uh, but it, at our center, I'm the, uh, the uh, director of the depression center at the University of Louisville. I don't do electroconvulsive therapy personally anymore. I just do outpatient work, but we do have two services where it's done for people with just profound 
depression that's not responded to medicine and they may be at risk to harm themselves. Mm. Uh, just, I'll give you a quick example. I had a, I referred a patient there, an older man, uh, a, a lovely person, uh, had a great career and he fell into an extremely deep depression in which he really had psychotic thoughts of believing that he was somehow a very harmful person that deserved to die and that mm. God's wrath was after him and so forth. And he had been on medicine and it was getting worse. And he had uh, just one or two of the electroconvulsive treatments had a complete reversal. He was wow. back to his old self. I wow. followed him now for, I think, three years since then. And he said, we put him on medicine afterwards. He's 100%. Wow. That's amazing. Back, That's he's amazing. Working, to he, he's, he's working again, even though he'd retired. Go back hmm. to work. Well, so you know, it's well, not like it's a, it's a uh, works for everybody every time. But if we look at a box score of treatments that work for depression, for severe depression, uh, electroconvulsive therapy is the most effective. Hmm. I was just wondering okay. about the connection too. And when you think about going back to, you know, a stream to follow, we talk about PTSD and especially back then and the, how that can lead to severe depression, right? Can, it can, right. can it literally, you know, really make you really incredibly unhappy as a human being. So would any of those kind of treatments have happened at that point in, you know, the World War II times? Uh Electroconvulsive therapy has not been used for PTSD, and just, it's not, it doesn't have a place for that. But oh, if okay. you have PTSD plus profound depression, which can occur together, then it might be used, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not something that I feature in, in this, this mm -hmm. book to follow. The treatments are gentler. Especially, mm -hmm. uh, okay. it sounds a, a lot nicer. That, <laughs> yeah, the very best treatment that we've learned through research for PTSD is what's called exposure therapy or cognitive behavior therapy with exposure, mm. meaning you help people who um, are having these horrific images that cross through their mind, nightmares, flashbacks, avoidance, emotional numbing. They really have to go back to the trauma and mm. with a guide, with a therapist, face it, confront it, mm. realize what it was, try to get beyond it so that it doesn't pervade every aspect of their waking and sometimes sleeping mm -hmm. here and now. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's why we call it exposure therapy. Oh. Uh, yeah. Okay. One, one of the most innovative treatments is called virtual reality exposure therapy. For example, uh, soldiers that have served in, in uh, Afghanistan or Iraq uh, who've had traumas like uh, a bomb explosive device going off right underneath them or killing a friend or whatever. Mm -hmm they're taken back with a headset and they're immersed in an environment that's like that while there's a friendly and supportive guide that helps them emote and get through it and get away mm. from the stuck feeling that they get. They, they're stuck in a place. So they need to get past that being stuck. Mm. Wow. Wow. Mm. What, what a fascinating, mm. you know, cause there's things like you hear the different, you know, therapies you, it can get, you know, in our minds, we're going, that's like exposure therapy. That sounds like, that mm. sounds traumatic. <laughs> you know? well, yeah, <laughs> or, yeah. or, or it could be, you know, you take it to the street. Yeah. I don't know. You know what I mean? So, you know, you that's hear a things. Point. And, um, yeah. And a stream to follow, the main mm. character, fortunately, comes to the realization that holding it all inside is, is, is really 
pulling him under. Mm. And there's got to be a way. Mm. And, and he finds that through his internal dialogue and through a loving relationship and through essentially good works in the community, mm. of finding a way to channel that instead mm. of allowing it to be stuck. Mm. Uh, so really, I'm showing a way that that um, he didn't have a therapist, uh, but he did have some people that really cared and loved him, mm-hmm. and helped him through. Yeah, awesome. And being out in nature—that's always mm-hmm. Mother Nature is really good. She's yeah. a healing healing force for oh, sure. Yeah. Right. Everyone, uh, I want to thank you for joining mm-hmm. us. Everyone, that you can go get the book out now. Well, excuse me, April nineteenth, but you can pre-order it now. Uh, it's called A Stream to Follow, and you can go to JessWrightMD.com. So that's W-R-I-G-H-T, JessWrightMD.com, and of course, keep up with us at BigBlendRadio.com every second Wednesday with Books Forward. Uh, we interview authors and uh, sometimes psychiatrists and and find you out all know. kinds of things that we never knew. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for writing thank your you. book. We're excited about your second one too. And mm-hmm. kudos to you on a whole new chapter, I should say, and a whole new adventure. So uh, toast to you. Well, thank you so much, Lisa and Nancy. Mm-hmm. It's been wonderful to be with you for a while. You thank too. You. Diamonds, silver, and gold? Oh my! Find your love language at JCPenney's Valentine's Day Jewelry Sale. Enjoy dazzling deals with your JCPenney credit card and coupon, like up to 70% off jewelry and up to 60% off modern bride rings. Plus, say yes please to $25 diamonds and gemstones while they last. Happy Valentine's Day, JCPenney. Offers valid on select styles through 220, subject to credit approval. Yes please jewelry excluded from coupons. Other exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. (laughs) 